You are now entering the spoiler zone. The following podcast contains explicit plot details and pockets of profanity. You have been warned. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone and welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. Today we are going to watch some TV to tie in with the tedium, the ongoing tedium, that is Brexit. Simon and I are on completely different sides of the fence on this. It's a very long, boring discussion which has absolutely no place in a podcast. But we are using it as an excuse to watch some really, really good 1980s TV. Before we do that, it's time to get out the tonic screwdriver. And what are we drinking today? Today we have got Tanqueray Seville which is quite a nice orange-flavoured gin. There are other ones. I know Whitley Neal do one. They do a blood orange one and uh, a Seville orange one. Just drinking it with normal tonic, no botanicals or anything. It's quite a nice, refreshing gin. I like it. It's lovely. Hits the spot. Doesn't really need anything extra to go with it. No, it doesn't. I've been discussing this earlier tonight that my personal preference is for the flavoured gins. There are some very good just standard gins which we've had recently and they have been really quite good. And the name of one completely escapes me for the moment. Kojin. Oh, Kojin, yeah. That's not a standard gin. That's so good. That's in a league of its own. Yeah, so it's on a winner with me just for for being a a flavour that I like to start. I will give that one four Bernards. I think that's a a safe four. It's a nice drink without being anything earth-shattering. One that I'd happily, happily come back to. So, um, a short and sweet gin review this week. But what this leads us on to quite nicely is our new segment. The Black Archive. The Black Archive. I'll let you go first this time. Which one would you like to pull off the dusty shelves? Well, because we are going to be watching a play about Margaret Thatcher, who was the Iron Lady, I would like to bring back a comedy series with Thora Hurd from the late 1960s called The Iron Lady. Oh. And it was about Thora Hurd as a lady city councillor. I think there are a couple of episodes that survive and interestingly in the same way that censor clips of Doctor Who have come back from Australia and New Zealand censor clips of some other shows have come back as well so there are clips from missing episodes of The Iron Lady that survive That's. Um, I think that ties in beautifully with the other Iron Lady that we're going to be talking about later it's twinging a memory is that one because I, I've always loved Thora Heard even when my nana was still alive my auntie said that when my nana shuffled off She'd like Thora Heard to replace her as mum. I think she was the original national treasure. I remember watching In Loving Memory with my grandmother, absolutely howling with laughter at it. It's just that Morecambe accent, but I read her autobiography and she'd actually written two. I didn't realise until I actually got to the midway point that both of her autobiographies were republished in one volume. And there were photographs of her in The Iron Lady. And it was always something I meant to get around to hunting down and never did. And now you've... That's something I wouldn't mind seeing if we... So now that you've rescued it from the archive, I look forward to watching the complete thing. Well, mine is... 
It's something that does actually exist, although the very ropey off-air recordings. There were two Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister shorts. One was a roundabout way of saying Merry Christmas in the way that only Sir Humphrey can. And the other featured Margaret Thatcher. And it's not bad, actually. But the copies that exist are pretty dodgy. So it would be nice to see those in the same sort of quality as the rest of the episodes, really. So not a lot to say about it, because they're, they're only seconds long, really. They're only a couple of minutes worth of material, but it's something that I'd like to have back. And with that, we are going to watch a couple of episodes of Yes Minister. Simon, are you familiar with these at all? I'm very familiar with Yes Minister. I remember watching it at the time and thoroughly enjoying it. I remember Yes Prime Minister as well. From recollection, Yes Minister tended to have the better scripts. So yeah, I'm really rather looking forward to seeing these again. The first episode we're going to watch is from Series 2 of Yes Minister. It's called The Devil You Know was broadcast in 1981. It all centres around a potential cabinet reshuffle that will see Jim Hacker relocated to Brussels, and it contains an absolutely fabulous speech from Sir Humphrey on the European countries. So, without further ado... Roll VT. This directive comes from Brussels, saying that all EEC members must conform to some niggling European word processing standards... Well, say something. Yes, Minister. Quite so. <laughs> is that all you want to say? Well, Minister, I'm afraid that is the penalty we have to pay for trying to pretend that we're Europeans. Believe me, I fully understand your hostility to Europe. I'm not like you, Humphrey. I'm pro-Europe. I'm just anti-Brussels. Brussels is, in fact, doing its best to defend the indefensible and to make the unworkable work. That is simply not true, Humphrey. Huh? I don't understand pompous, but the European idea is our best hope of avoiding narrow national self-interest. Europe is a community of nations dedicated towards one goal. Oh! <laughs> oh may we share the joke, Humphrey? Oh, Minister. <laughs> now, let's look at this objectively. It is a game played for national interests and always was. Why do you suppose we went into it? To strengthen the brotherhood of free Western nations. Oh, really? We went in to screw the French by splitting them off from the Germans. <laughs> well, why did the French go into it, then? Well, to protect their inefficient farmers from commercial competition. It certainly doesn't apply to the Germans. No, no, they went in to cleanse themselves of genocide and apply for readmission to the human race. <laughs> Never heard such appalling cynicism. Oh, well, at least the small nations didn't go into it for selfish reasons. Really? Luxembourg's in it for the perks. The capital of the EEC, all that foreign money pouring in. Hmm? Very sensible central location. With the administration in Brussels and the parliament in Strasbourg, Minister, it's like having the House of Commons in Swindon and the Civil Service in Kettering. What did you think of that? It was all right. It's a sitcom of its time. A bit slow looking at it compared to modern sitcoms. It's consistently entertaining, but there's very little sort of absolute laugh out loud. It's very clever. It's slightly disappointing that there wasn't one of Sir Humphrey's standard long obfuscation speeches. <laughs> which is sort of what you come to expect yeah, from you it. Do. Yes. It's pretty much a three-hander with a couple of extra people thrown in, but basically the, yeah. the three leads who all do a very competent job. Yeah, I enjoyed it. 
I put Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister in the same bracket, really. After Who, it's probably my favourite series of all time. There's very few episodes that I don't really enjoy re-watching, any of them at any time. They've almost all been translated into radio episodes, which I've never really understood because they are virtually identical. You could just take the television soundtrack and put it on radio and you know exactly what's going on. I agree entirely with you. It's very cleverly written. I think both of the writers for this got knighthoods out of it in the end. Certainly recognition. And it was, for what it's worth, Margaret Thatcher's favourite programme of the era. Not spitting image. Not spitting... I can't think why. I almost, almost brought us a spitting image to watch tonight for this Brexit special, but... Please don't call it that. <laughs> Moss Brexit extravaganza. I hadn't noticed until you've just pointed it out that there isn't one of the obfuscation hmm. speeches uh, in this one. The standout moment, and I know that I'm not alone in thinking this, is that particular speech about where he goes through the European countries and lists why they wanted to be part of Europe. Even by this point, I mean, this was 1981, the wheels were starting to come off what it had been set up for, and there was an amount of cynicism, certainly within government. This would be the politics we weren't going to discuss. It is, no, 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 this is the history of the time. I'm not going into it any further than that. But you do get the balance from Hacker as to why, actually, there are good reasons for it. So it is, it's not all one-sided, is what I meant, which the subsequent episode has slightly less balance to it with regards to France. It's an episode of Yes, Prime Minister from 1987, and it focuses on the opening of the Channel Tunnel. Roll VT. But now I can turn to a happy matter. Our president will be bringing a little present with him, <laughs> which he will be presenting to Her Majesty. A little puppy. Oh, of course. Delightful thought, but I'm afraid the presentation won't be possible for another six months. Our quarantine laws, you know. But that is absurd. Do you suggest the President of France would present the Queen of England with a diseased puppy? No, 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 no. Then it is settled. No, no, it is not settled. You must suggest to your President that he brings a different gift. Prime Minister, I cannot tell you the gravity of the affront my government would feel. I fear it would be interpreted as both a national and a personal affront to the President and his wife. Excellency, you must ask the President not to bring that bitch with him. <laughs> that was a diplomatic incident from the second series of Yes, Prime Minister from 1987. So six years after the previous episode. It was, and as you pointed out, there's some ageing gone on, but not consistently. Yes, of the three leads, Jim Hacker and uh, Sir Humphrey don't seem to have aged very much at all. Whereas Bernard, Bernard seems to have aged about 20 years. Yeah, and I'd never so noticed that clearly before. had a hard life. Because <laughs> I've, I've never really watched these jumping about from series to series. I've never done that big mm. a gap before. It's very noticeable that in six, seven years... Yeah. The other thing is the pacing of the plot, the content of the plot, much tighter pacing, mm. much more going on in the episode. Less of the slow wordplay. Mm. And the wordplay's still there. It's again no Sir Humphrey obfuscation. No, there wasn't. I managed to pick two where he doesn't do any. I've picked them both because they've got... 
European connections. Derek Folds I noticed Bernard Woolley gets quite a bit to do in this one. For a lot of the time throughout all the series, all mm. five series, he's just there in the background to interject periodically. Now, as time wore on, he got a lot more of those comic interjections mm. to do. Uh, when it first started out, he was very much the middle ground functionary, and as time wore on, he became a, a little bit less. Yeah, he seemed to have more to do, and Sir mm. Humphrey seemed to have a bit less to do. Yeah. I mean, there was a good ensemble cast there. This is one of my favourite episodes of the mm. whole canon, so I'm doubly glad that this is sort of cropped up tonight. But two, who alumni? Yes. Yes, the Brigadier himself. So playing Nicholas Courtney. The Brigadier. Playing the Brigadier, as basically. he did in pretty much everything, with a real moustache this time, I notice. And Henry Gordon Jago. Yes. Christopher Benjamin. With a fairly... Awful French yeah. accent. It was the most RP French accent I have ever heard. <laughs> Bonjour, old chap. Comment uh, allez-vous? We are bringing a puppy. Old fruity. <laughs> if you didn't know who's playing a Frenchman... You wouldn't know. You wouldn't tell from the no. accent. I mean, throughout the series, they always got good actors. I think this one, though, is the only one where the accents are just all over the place. The Russian one's quite good. The Russian one was quite good, but they were clearly all played by home counties, RP. The American accent was a bit patchy. Yeah, yeah, when it was good, it was very, very good, and when it was bad, it was horrid. And the, the French president, again, drifted sort of into the home counties more often than not. But that's picking it apart on a, on a 1980s technical level. I'm, I'm not sure the, the ambassador's accent is picking it apart on any technicality. It no, was just awful. It was awful. You'd never get away with that now, ever. Uh, in fact, I think you would be pulled apart if you didn't actually cast a Frenchman. There's, there's really no excuse not to nowadays. We've got so many multicultural actors in England that you really they, they, yeah. they do get pulled up on it, and rightly so, to be honest. Because it does pull you out of the realism. But anyway, Henry Gordon Jago. But I have to be honest, I enjoyed that a lot more than the first one. It was tighter, there was more going on, it was a bit better plotted... The fact that it was a larger ensemble cast doesn't really worry me. I've, I've no problems with things being a three-hander, four-hander, mm. whatever. But no, there was just more going on with it. It was well, still a, a very clever plot. Oh, it was. I mean, the Yes Minister episode focused on Jim Hacker being offered a, a commissionership in Brussels, and the whole episode was tied up with that and a cabinet reshuffle. This one had a little bit of a, a broader remit. I mean, it starts out with the publication of Jim Hacker's predecessor's memoirs, which don't paint him in a very good light. And the former Prime Minister dies before the memoirs are finished, and therefore they can never be published. Now, that's about the least believable bit of this episode. Because if that actually did happen, there would be a bestseller, because it would be a posthumous autobiography. So it would not be hushed up. But it very quickly then descends into the funeral of the Prime Minister being uh, an international event where everybody comes from around the world and happens to coincide with the opening of the Channel Tunnel. So it's a chance for the French to create a diplomatic incident by offering a puppy to the Queen of England as a present. This causes all sorts of problems with quarantine laws, and hence the hijinks ensue. Now, the Brussels episode, it was quite balanced towards Europe as a whole. It wasn't... Some of there were arguments for and against, mm. but it was balanced... This episode less so. It's quite anti-French. They don't come. They don't come off very well from this. Uh, no, it's affectionately no, it's, done. It's not in a nasty way, but it's it? yes. 
Of course, our, our French partners. We're sure about this. And, <laughs> no, and we're we not just sure watched the all. same episode. Not sure at all. Yeah, the, yes, I mean, there was pretty much no mention of Europe as a whole. It was entirely English-French. Mm. It's not the only sitcom to have done that. No, it isn't. There is yeah. one I keep meaning to ask you about, actually. It's probably one that you've got in your archive somewhere. Mm. I've never seen a one. It was some terrible early Sky sitcom called Heil Honey, I'm Home. And it was about the home life of the Hitlers or something like that. It was, and apparently it was so offensive that after the... <laughs> They made half a dozen episodes and only one has been transmitted. I've only ever seen clips of it. Who thought that was a good idea? Honestly. <laughs> I've got a fairly black sense of humour. Anyway, we are sidetracking massively. Just for a change. The next segment of our Brexit special is Anyone for Dennis, which is a farce by, I want to say, John West. John Wells. John Wells, who writes and stars in it as Dennis Thatcher. The background to it is that it was a West End play originally. And it was based on a column that John Wells wrote in Private Eye called Dear Bill. Dear Bill. And it was about fictional letters that Dennis Thatcher was writing to this friend of his, Bill. They were very, very successful at the time, apparently. It was a little bit before my time. Mm. But it was a very popular thing on, on Private Eye and became this stage show with John Wells himself played Dennis Thatcher with Angela Thorne as Margaret Thatcher. And so... Because of the success of the stage production, it was transferred to television and transmitted on the 28th of December 1982. So if Brexit goes completely tits up, we could always put this into our Christmas special. (laughs) Without further ado, we shall watch Anyone for Dennis with one N. Hello, Bill. Me, he who trails along in the perfumed wake, hands behind the back, the embarrassing appendage, what? No, you beer, of course it's not the Duke of Edinburgh. No, it's Dennis. Dennis T. Well, I'm not allowed to say Thatcher over the phone. Margaret's just tightened up the security arrangements, sir. No, the thing is, the proprietor has got her knickers in rather a twist about the Euro contributions. It seems they are diddling her again, so she's shot off to Brussels to try and extract a largish rebate from the oily frog, leaving me in sole charge of the entire gin palace fully staffed, so I thought you might all like to toddle over, what? No, no, feel no qualms. There is a whiff of an election in the air, and Margaret is uh, splashing out as if there was no tomorrow. She's even squandered £31 million, which you believe, on the Falklands. Well, it works out about one million quid per sheep. Now, it's not real money nowadays, of course. I mean, British Steel loses that on a Wednesday afternoon. OK, anyone for Dennis? Even before we press play, the title screen, I thought, yes, this is all very much my sort of thing. You agreed with me. <coughs> it opens up at Checkers. And Dennis Thatcher pulls up. Basically, this big country house to himself, stops to the rafters with gin, and immediately launched into a telephone call with somebody. His, his Bill. As in Dear Bill. Dear Bill. And the dialogue flows. I mean, it just absolutely flows from John Wells. A superb performance. You don't but, think it's a bit wordy? Well, yeah, but it's very true to... Dennis Thatcher was given a bit of a bad rep as just being this drunken old source that propped up Margaret Thatcher at home, but he was quite... Well, he'd, an, he'd been your proper captain of industry, hadn't yeah. he? Yeah. 
Oh, he does. And, and that is referenced in the play, that he was not just Margaret Thatcher's husband, he was actually... But it quickly descends into farce. I'm not a big fan of farce. The one thing I will say about this right from the start, it's very well written, very well researched, and it's all entirely credible as something that could go on behind closed doors. Even, I, I would say so, even the the Frenchman trying it on or the Belgian trying it on with Margaret Thatcher, I can believe a variation of events at Chequers going on in this way. I was more thinking the drunken interlopers at the end escaping dressed as Margaret Thatcher in her clothes. Okay, that, that bit, yeah, that bit trailed off a, a tad. The cast is superb. You've got, and I can't remember her damn name, she was an after Henry Joan... Joan Sanderson. Joan Sanderson who plays the Admiral, perfectly cast. She is wonderful. Some of the dialogue is very much of its time. Yes, it is. Um, there's one point where she turns to the camera and says, I blame Wolfenden, and I'm just thinking, oh, yes, that was of its time. There's one point where he's on the phone talking about uh, Chinamen waiting for a pay rise, the kitchen staff revolt, and uh, yes, Chinamen. They're the last to know when it rains, but the first to know when it floods. Yeah, we'll just let that one pass by. And there were a few other incidences like that peppered throughout the course of the play. It's filmed and recorded very much as a play. Most of the action takes place within one set. There are periodical ventures into other rooms of the house, but not many. It was all right. My trouble is I have been ruined by Yes Minister, and I want all political comedies to be Yes Minister, and they're not. Fair enough. And I, I like Yes Minister. I enjoyed the episodes that we watched. I don't think it's the greatest comedy that was ever made, but I think it's a very good and, mm, and yeah, enjoyable entertaining, one. yeah. Anyone for Dennis? I don't really remember from the time. I've seen it a few times since and thoroughly enjoy it and enjoy the performances because certainly the two leads are absolutely superb. I think this is, is it 82, 83? 82. 82. And the, the stage play had been going on mm. for a year or so before then, and so it's... It was probably being written not long after she came to power in 79. Yeah. Well, there's pointed reference to the Falklands in it, uh, which is, a, again, a throwaway gag about she found so many millions to fight. The Falklands War, that works that out. That was 81, wasn't it? No, that was 82. It was no, quite, was it? yeah, quite recent Falklands. It works out as about a million pounds per sheep. There were a few belly laughs. I, I must, a few moments where I did genuinely laugh out loud at some of the dialogue. Perhaps we should just... Explain what the plot is. You're always better at this than I am. Go on, off you go. As Ken said, the entire play is set around Chequers, which is the the country house of the Prime Minister of England. And it starts off with Dennis Thatcher turning up, believing that Margaret Thatcher is going to be away in Brussels for the weekend. So he arranges for a few of his friends to come along and have a a drinking session. Mm. When he gets there, he's met by three members of staff. The Admiral, who's very starchy and matronly. The Butler... Roy Jenkins, who's played by John, John Nettleton, Nettleton, who was Reverend Matthews in Ghostlight. Ghostlight. And a general factotum, Boris, who's a KGB spy, played by Roy Kinnear, who has this little secret cubbyhole under the stairs. Very quickly, they're joined by a police inspector, played by Alfred Molina, yeah. who's there to look after Dennis Thatcher's safety. And you see location footage of two friends who are hightailing it to checkers for this weekend of drinking, who are obviously absolutely K-Lied. Behind the wheel. And one of those is played by John Cater, who was Crimpton in The War Machines. I knew I'd seen him somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's not that long since we did The War Machines. Mm. 
things in true farce like fashion get completely thrown out the window when Margaret Thatcher turns up with three visiting dignitaries in tow, a French, a German and an American. And then the two drunken friends who've crashed their car in the local graveyard and have staggered their way into the house get first mistaken for the French and German visiting dignitaries and then the Admiral realises that they're not who they're thought to be, tells the police inspector who goes very SAS commando Mm. and a bit gung-ho and blows up the room that they're in and chaos ensues. There's the typical farce, people running about, one person getting confused for another, the American delegate is mistaken for the drunk driver by the police inspector who keeps getting clonked over the head and dragged out and and the two drunk friends of Dennis's end up Margaret Thatcher's economic advisors and both the French delegate and the German delegate are trying to seduce Margaret Thatcher as a way of getting extra concessions at the debating table. It it all gets really quite silly. French and German ambassadors, delegates, whatever, for no readily apparent reason, get kicked out of the house and savaged by the dogs, have guard in the place, and the two drunken friends both dress up as Margaret Thatcher to sneak out of the house. (laughs) Just listening to you replay it back, it's sharpening how daft it gets in the end. Oh yeah, it starts off quite sedate and then descends. I like fast, so I, I was really entertained by this. Alan wasn't keen in the slightest. Yeah. I had high hopes for it. It just it didn't deliver for me in the end. But if you like farce, I've got to say that Angela Thorne's performance is monumentally good. He's great as Dennis Thatcher. The scant bits that we actually saw of Dennis Thatcher in public life. He's fairly much nailed the vocal mannerisms and uh, and certainly the look. But why Angela Thorne was not the go-to Margaret Thatcher, I do not know. Because she was superseded by Spitting Image. Well, she was by the chap whose name I cannot remember. But with the wig on and the makeup done... We she, should do Spitting Image at some point. I have series 1 to 13, I think, sat on the shelf right there. We could do a spit... Yes, I am fully in favour. We should do the Russian roulette and find an episode. It's got to be one of the early ones with Thatcher and Ronnie, though. Much as I love Spitting Image, the Thatcher and Reagan years were still the best ones, with the cabinets of Norman Lamont and yeah, the golden era. As I've said, we are recording these... Horrifically sporadically and without no real organisation or plan or thought of what we do next. It's a perfect allegory for Brexit. It is a perfect allegory for Brexit. The complete pig's breakfast that they're making of it at the minute. As at the time of recording, Theresa May has just said that she will resign if her Brexit deal fails to get through Parliament a fourth time. But didn't she I'm... say that before the third vote? No, I don't think she did. No, I don't think so. I am not a Tory in any way, but I've got to take my hat off to the woman that she's had staying power that a lot, in fact, most other people would not have had. But she has unfortunately given them an open goal tonight to vote down the next deal in Parliament, which is at the beginning of June, and turf her out, which they will, just out of spite. And then Boris Johnson has said that he's going to run to be the next PM, hasn't he? I would be absolutely... There are two frontrunners. I will say this now, and I... Ladbrokes, Betfred, however many other betting shops there are out there that I don't frequent, I should really put money on Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg as uh, next Prime Minister. I don't think any of the women stand half a chance. At least two you don't of... think they'd give it to somebody like Gove as a poison chalice? Um, Can like... you imagine Michael Gove as Prime Minister? Can you imagine the hell on earth that that would be? Before he'd even opened his mouth. 
the entire country would hate him. And you don't think the entire country hates Thingy Rees-Mogg? I've got a lot of time for the man. Because at least he does open... When he opens his mouth, he knows what he's talking about. I mean, the trouble that we've got at the minute... Gosh, we're segueing a little bit. The trouble we've got is that a Prime Minister, or indeed a lot of politicians, are not judged by what they know. They're judged on how good their media appearance is. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg may have travelled forward in time by 150 years, but he does know what he's talking about. If you listen to him in interviews, he's very erudite and he knows what he's talking about. And people fire things at him and he very calmly says why they're wrong, but not in this aggressive, condescending way. Now, if I'm going to have somebody leading the country, I want them to know what they're talking about and be able to deliver it like that. I feel so sorry for Theresa May. I genuinely do. Um, I don't, to be honest, because she was very anti-Brexit before she got the job. True. And you know that she is coming out with stuff that she herself doesn't believe Doesn't really believe, yes. But she knew that that was the job that she went into. I don't feel sorry for her in the slightest. No, she knew that that was the job that she went into, but she's trying to steer a ship on a course that, agree or disagree... The electoral mandate has decided. Clearly her heart is not in that, but she is trying to do the right thing. I know. I, I honestly believe that she's trying to do the right thing by the public. Every time it's gone through Parliament, she's tried a different tack to try and implicate Parliament, to try and implicate the public. If nothing else, there's no reason why she couldn't have walked away at the first hurdle and said, sod it, pension for life, I'm set up, done my bit. If you don't like it... Oops, she stayed the course. I mean, it's visibly aged her. I mean, do you not think she's got some sort of enormous great golden handshake waiting for her at the end of this? Well, all Prime Ministers do. It's not like yeah. um, the golden handshake for a Prime Minister. It doesn't matter whether you serve 60 days or five years, you've got all the perks. She hasn't needed to hang on this long. Yeah. As I say, she's not flying my flag. The Tory party, generally speaking, don't represent my values. But she stayed the course. The only reason I know anybody's in the cabinet nowadays is when they resign. And I think, oh, who are you? I've resigned on principle. Good, I don't know who you are. Or care. Or care. I don't. There's very few people in government that... And this will loop back, and I'll say this with all sincerity... Spitting image gave politicians personalities that they didn't actually have. Cecil Parkinson. Cecil Parkinson. (laughs) (laughs) There's a wonderful quote that Rory Bremner did about Cecil Parkinson where he gets invited to a dinner party and he says it's like having Leslie Phillips as your MP. Uh, The invitation says 7.30 for 8. Not sure even I can manage that many. (laughs) 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 You just don't get that nowadays. We need satirists. Yeah, I mean, that kind of political satire on television dates back to that was the week that was. Yes, it is. First Um, time it was done, yeah. And that we could definitely do. David Frost. That's leading us into the Watergate tapes, isn't it, really? If you look at it, he might be fronting it, but he's he's not the the main voice behind it. He moves on from that to things like the Frost tapes. Yeah, but in that was the week that was, it's very definitely an ensemble. Mm. I've got one of their shows somewhere on disc, so we, we could do that. Do you know, I am just in the mood for a spitting image. While we're in the middle of this random recording session, let's have a spitting image. 
Yes, let's. Based on the suggestions of the working policy committees, I have weighed up the options open to us for the next term, and I can announce exactly what we are going to do for the next five years. Uh, Whatever we like! Well, that was Series 4, Episode 1 of Spitting Image from 1987. A, a lot of the jokes... I'll let you explain what we've I, just I'm going to say, a lot of the jokes rely on a knowledge of current affairs at the time. So, some of the stuff, I must admit, I'd forgotten all about and I, I didn't entirely get, but some of it stands up, even now, 30-odd years later, it stands up extremely well. It did. Yeah, I remember watching Spitting Image at the time, thinking it was absolutely hilarious. Yes. It was a staple Sunday night viewing all the way through my high school years. That was when I started getting interested in politics. And even then, at a very reasonably young age, sort of uh, 12, 13, I got most of this. Thatcher, of course, was in there as some of the stuff was extremely cruel, actually. They had her portrayed as Medusa when she got. <laughs> And she got her hair done. And um, Ronald Reagan's in there as this. I mean, it's, Ronald Reagan was 77 when he got elected. And this is five years after the fact. So they've got him as this bumbling idiot. <laughs> the Reagan Thatcher years were hilarious in terms of satire. It was a, it was a golden age for satirists. Uh, we just rounded off with a song from David Owen and David Steele when the SDP disbanded and became the Liberal Party. David Steele, he still to this day, I think, regards Spitting Images as his own personal downfall, as being just David Owen's little puppet. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he, he always was seen, seen as sort of diminutive and hanging on David Owen's every word. And I always remember David Owen in Spitting Image, and whether I'm remembering this right or wrong, but as Dracula. Uh, I don't ever remember seeing him as that. And I am remembering it all because it wasn't Spitting Image. It was not the Nine O'Clock News. Ah, right. We can do some not Nine O'Clock News. Yeah, happily, um, yes. They did a couple of books. They did Not the Royal Re- Wedding and Not the General Election. And in Not the General Election, they had David Owen as Dracula. I don't think I've seen that. No, it's not It's not ringing any bells whatsoever. I mean, that, that would be a few years earlier than this. That, that would have been 80, 81. Oh. So probably a bit before your time. I've just got that bloody song in my head now. Which one? The the goodbye song. Oh, we've right. just both been singing by the piano. Goodbye, goodbye. goodbye. I'm leaving you, goodbye, goodbye. I wish you all goodbye. Yada yada yada. Take it away, David. Old damn party, and take him away too with his silly stripy shirt and his one colour collars. Goodbye. And goodbye to you, David, Mr. Oh, so good-looking, so manly and yet so Machiavellian, so tall and yet so treacherous, so sophisticated and yet so stupid. Goodbye, David. Because oh. those are Michael Jackson's songs. <laughs> way, way ahead of its time. Uh, long before his um, assisted suicide. Yeah, this is in 87, so I think... What's the album at the time? It was talking about Bad. Bad, yeah. They were singing Mad. Mad. With a similar kind of dance routine, but with 
Who they had? Seen, uh, they, they had Leonard Nimoy. They had Michael Tony Hesseltine. Ben. Colonel <laughs> Gaddafi. Because he's backing dancers. Oh, and there, there, was, there was one bit where they were interviewing Kinnock. He was pretending to be a yuppie from a long line of yuppies. And just oh. in the background, there was Ken Livingston. Headbutting, <laughs> headbutting one of the, the bouncer. <laughs> and Robin Day with an enormous cardboard bow tie. I really enjoyed that. I'd forgotten yeah. how much... <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun from beginning to end. You can disengage your brain and just watch it and enjoy it. Just, by the time Spitting Image finished, the estimated cost of each episode, even then, in the mid-90s, was a million pounds an episode because they were just making so many new puppets all the time. And I can believe it. And has there been before or since a political satire that's been that? They did something a couple of years ago. There have been a, a few sort of pretenders to the crown. There was, I think, two... Was it 2D TV and head cases, which wasn't bad, actually. And more recently, Newsoids, which was a mixture of puppets and CGI. And there's some really good stuff on that. But the trouble is, really, that sort of stuff needs to go out on Sunday night. It needs to be in the spitting image slot. And these were just bounced all over the schedules. Oh, I suppose Drop the Dead Donkey. Yeah, I mean, okay, okay they, uh, they they were concurrent, but the the political and because they didn't they pre-record to seventy five eighty percent of the episode, and then the night before or the day before it was broadcast, they'd put all the up to the date stuff in. So it, I wouldn't like to go out on a limb on that. I don't know, and I never really watched Drop the Dead Donkey. Oh, I, I, see, I used to quite like Drop the Dead Donkey, but I'm pretty sure all the sort of very current news stuff in the in the newsroom was written the week that it was transmitted right. and recorded the weeks that it was transmitted. But all the whatever ongoing sitcom plot that was the mainstay of the episode. Mm. I suppose the most successful political satire was that was the week that was because it was the, the first and it was so influential at the time. It only ran for a year. Is that all? Yeah, because at the end of it, there was the general election coming up and the BBC were encouraged to stop it. Actually, I think the BBC were told to stop it because the then government felt that that programme would influence people. Well, I didn't know that. Only a year, Greg. I thought it was much longer than that. Almost all of it survives. I think there's one, maybe two missing editions. Can I wonder whether that's anything to do with David Trost? Because he became quite a powerful figure. He was certainly controller of radio for a while, wasn't Mm. he? And wasn't he something to do with the setting up of BBC Two? It was David Attenborough. Uh, no, I thought David Frost was as well. May well have been. And I didn't realise David Attenborough had been controller of BBC Two for quite a long time. And it was only because he wanted to make documentaries about wildlife. Because he, he was in line for I think it was something stupid like the Director General's job, David Attenborough. Hmm. Uh, and that's the only reason he didn't take it on. Because he, he just had this burning urge to make... Wildlife programs, but uh, no, I know David Frost was was this major figure across the the whole of BBC TV. Yeah, because he he did things like the Frost Report, mm. and I'm sorry, I'll read that again, almost as a as a hobby. Mm. And I, I think I'm sorry, I'll read that again, even though it was massively successful, never made the transition to television because he didn't have time to commit to it as, yeah. as a television program, but he did as a radio. In the same way that Cabin Pressure never translated to television, even though it would have done brilliantly, because Benedict Cumberbatch continued doing Cabin Pressure even after he was a, a big star and getting to be a big Hollywood star, mm. because he really liked doing it. He liked work, working with Roger Allen, he liked working with Stephanie Cole, he liked working with John Finnemore. The whole team gelled very well together, so he used to make time to come back but you can do an episode of a radio sitcom much more quickly. Oh, comfortably, yeah. yeah. 
We're getting back to spitting image. Getting back to spitting image. It's one of those old cliches where I don't think it was as good towards the end. Although, because I watched it devoutly right until the very end. Somewhere I've actually got the, the very last episode on VHS. But I think that there is room on television for something like that. In fact, if anything, there's a gaping void for something like that nowadays. There's nothing really that's that near the knuckle. Yeah. And, I mean, that was the thing about that was the week that was. and Because of its success and because of its influence it had on the, on the public, factions within the government would, would, had enough power within the BBC to be able to say, just stop it. Mm. And they did. By the time you were getting on to Spitting Image, there had been that separation and there wasn't the level of political control that was available. And also, it wasn't a BBC programme. That I think TW3 lasted longer on American screens than it did on... Because there was an American spin-off afterwards that had, instead of Millicent Martin and Lance Percival and people like that doing the music, they had Tom Lehrer. I'll tell you a word for all that. He did Masks from Tango, Poisoning the Pigeons in the Park. Segway onto YouTube at some point, there is an absolutely hilarious... Hopefully there's video evidence of it, because I... I Saw it live, but it was part of their stage show for years. Lily Savage used to do a part of her stage show with an Australian comic called Bob Down. And they used to do a dance routine to the tune of the Masochism Tango, <laughs> which was just absolutely hilarious. How have we got this far off topic? Again, it's a talent. We're six recording sessions in. You really need to be asking that <sighs> question. Well... We're six recording sessions of this in, and what, 15 years of actually doing this? Uh, yeah, and the way that Brexit is going, we're going to have enough material for two Brexit specials. Um, and as Simon pointed out the other Which day... Which are likely to be released sometime during 2030. Yeah, so I'm going to sign off this edition, because I think we've got enough in the can at the moment, and we've got more to watch, including The Thick of It, The Alan Clark Diaries. Oh God, does that mean I have to sit through more of The Thick of It? No, we just watch one. That will do. Yes, I've already done that. It was awful. Can I bring some absolute power instead? Yes, with pleasure. Let's record our second Brexit special, and hopefully the nightmare will have ended before we finish. Yeah, I wouldn't put money on it. Neither would I. For the moment, boys and girls, thank you for listening to what will probably end up being part one. We shall sign off. See you next time for more Brexity goodness. Au revoir. Coming soon from the Exton Moss experiment, Revenge of Brexit. A new day has dawned. The government's position will be to recommend that Britain remains. The British people decide. We work together constructively. A one-off choice between staying in or leaving completely. There won't be another referendum on Europe. This is a once-in-a-generation vote. All eyes this morning are on number 10 Downing Street. Order! What plans do they have, if any? For Parliament to force another pointless delay. A simple withdrawal will suffice. This will be a victory for real people. You may be a cheeky chappy, but you're also an exceptionally noisy one. We're going to leave on October the 31st. Deal or no deal. Get a grip of yourself, man. Parliament should respect that referendum result. We've said that all the way through. You would go back to Europe, try and get a better deal. Would you then be campaigning against your own deal? Labour accepts and respects the result of the referendum. <laughs> We're leaving the European Union. We're leaving the European Union. Britain is leaving the European Union. We're leaving the European Union. We'll leave the EU in March 2019. We're leaving the European Union in March 2019.
the Exton-Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.